Hi, guys. Good morning. I am Jen Fisher. I'm your community director here at Forefront Brooklyn. And I want us to start out this morning by taking that little piece of paper and uh, doing a little exercise. This is an exercise about our values and our desires or our dreams. So first, I want you to answer this question, okay? Take out your little Forefront pen and answer this question. What are three things that you would like to have that would improve your quality of life now? So these can be things that you, you know, like you can write down a new sweater or the iPhone 6 or I want a promotion so I can travel more, whatever. The first three things that pop into your head, don't put the church answer, only you are going to see this, okay? So tell the truth. I'll give you guys a minute. I should have told Ben to stay up here and play a little music or something. That'll be second service. <laughs> okay. Got three things? Roughly three things? So let's consider this our list of our desires or our dreams. All right. Now start a new section on the sheet of paper or flip it over, whatever, and answer this question. When things are going really well in my life, what does it look like? In other words... You know, when things are going really well, when I'm feeling good and healthy and balanced, I go to the gym regularly, or I'm eating healthy, I pray, I I sleep regularly, whatever it is, I have good conversations with friends. Put down whatever it is, a few things that make you feel good and healthy and balanced. What matters most in your life? The things that bring you wholeness, I guess. Write a few of those things down now. Okay, so Ben talked about that retreat that we went on this week. It was hosted by Orchard Group, the church planting organization that helped to start Forefront. Uh, on that retreat, we made up a list like this of our, our, what matters to us, our values, what brings us joy and meaning. So um, we answered the question, what brings you delight? And I realized that for me, the things that, that I delight in are also the things that matter most to my health and my balance. So, you know praying and having good conversations with friends, if I'm doing those things, making those things that I delight in a priority, even when life is stressful and anxious and my to-do list is really full, I often find that it's a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier to take on the challenges of life when I'm still focusing in on what really matters to me. So this second list, let's pretend, is our list of what matters. So now I want us to take a moment to look at both of these lists together. And I want you to ask yourself, do you see any conflict in them? Ask, will these things truly give me the joy and meaning that I'm looking for? These things that I desire, do they match up with the things that matter to me? Or would I have to sacrifice some of what matters in order to get the things that I desire? See if there's any conflict or any challenges between those two lists. And if you do find some tension, then I want you to know that you're not alone. You know, we live in this incredible city, but... New York definitely makes it hard for us to live from a place where we feel balanced and whole, 
to live from a place of what matters most to us when we are surrounded by these material things and these pressures of this society everywhere we look. I have some friends. They're married, and they have a daughter who is in middle school. And they were telling me recently that they'd made a decision to start living more out of their values as a family. So this meant that they were going to make more time in their lives for rest and family time. And this is a family that had the luxury of being able to do some of these things. You know, the father, he's a lawyer. He decided to cut his workload down from five days a week to four. The mother is an academic. She decided to take on less projects, pursue less papers and and speeches, so that she had a little bit more free time. And together, they sat down with their daughter, and they told her that she only gets to do one after-school activity this year. So, of course, you know, there was some resistance from their daughter because her friends were all in multiple activities, sports and music and language classes. But these were the kids who got up at 6 a.m. and didn't go to bed till 10. So the parents explained that this was part of a larger family plan to pursue rest. And this is a big decision. It was going to take a lot of intentionality on their part, as it would probably for a lot of us. It meant turning down extra income. It meant risking some financial security, maybe. Uh, They didn't know how they were going to feel about this decision 20 years from now. It's not a natural choice to make in our culture. In this capitalist society, we are told that success is defined by where we are in our careers, how big our bank accounts are, what we own. And maybe you're sitting here thinking that, you know, that family was in a position that I'm not in. Maybe I'll prioritize what matters, things like rest, family, all that. I'll balance my life out a little bit more when I've reached a point in my career, or when I'm married, or when I have kids. But are you just succumbing to the same culture that tells you that you don't have enough, that you are not enough right now? This is a hard thing, this tension that we live in, to try to balance between living wholeheartedly and and dealing with the material world. And this family, these parents, told me that While they sat there confidently telling their daughter this was the plan, inside, they were panicking. They were thinking things like, is this a terrible mistake? Are we, you know, ruining our futures? What about our retirement? What about our daughter? Doesn't she need to have a resume full of activities in order to get into a good college and start her life off well? What if busy and exhausted is what it takes to thrive in this city? What if we're just ordinary and quiet and happy? Does that count as a life worth living? And I get it. I get this tension. When my husband, Bobby, and I got married last year, we had to sit down and have these conversations. You know, we were trying to merge two individual lives, two sets of values into one. And to tell you the truth, having those conversations, it doesn't actually make life any easier. In fact, it makes it harder. Because now you have to ask yourself, do the things that I desire, do they actually line up with what really matters to me? You know, my top two values are to serve others and to grow personally. But how do I do those things when I feel the pressures of the city all around me? You know, we feel at odds with what matters to us when we look around our tiny one-bedroom apartment and confess that I don't want to still live here 10 years from now. That's not what I dreamed of. How do you have a social life and still save for retirement or for illnesses you can't predict? How do you save when you still have school loans? How do I choose a career that serves when I feel the pressures of the rising cost of living and my salary isn't going to rise to match it? The list goes on and on. And maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself, 
I'm trying to navigate a new career or climb a corporate ladder, and trying to stay true to who I am is really challenging. And if you've ever dated in this city, you know that trying to date here and stay true to your beliefs can be a really hard thing sometimes. So we all have these worries, right? I look at my parents. They're getting ready for retirement. They are thinking about what they're going to do for extra income, for insurance, for stability, for years of illnesses and life that they can't predict, and that all seems completely overwhelming to me. But the truth is, the choices that we make now, these decisions about our financial plans, they do have an effect on our relationships, our careers, our retirements. So while it might feel a long way off, that pressure to make wise choices and sound investments just piles on. And the question comes down to, how do I deal with the, with the demands of the material world and still live through faith? Well, this week we are starting a new series called Matter, and over the next few weeks we are going to look at the idea of commerce in the kingdom of God. You know, oftentimes we think that our financial plans are separate from our spiritual lives, whether we consciously separate them or not. But in reality, our gifts, our purchases, our financial plans are made long before the commercial exchange happens in the world of matter. The exchange occurs first within our hearts. And all that Jesus taught, all that he modeled and ministered was aimed at getting people to shape the heart first because he knew that if we shaped our hearts, then our outer actions would soon follow. So what we spend our money on, it matters to our faith. It matters to our character. It matters to Jesus because the spending of our money is always preceded by the priorities of our heart. So in this series over the next few weeks, we're going to try to shape our view of the material world by first shaping our hearts. And we're going to start this week with that tension, that anxiety that we all feel when we are trying to live from our hearts, but that fear of the future of the unknown tries to take hold. And this is a struggle that humankind has faced throughout the ages. Ben just read for us from the book of Exodus. Here we see the people of Israel. They are committing this sin that just outrages God. Out of their anxiety, they build an idol, a golden calf. And they they give it credit for what God has done for them. But in order for us to understand the magnitude of this sin, we first have to understand the context of their story. So, here we are with the people of Israel. They have just been freed from slavery, uh, and they're in the desert of Sinai with Moses and Aaron, who led them out of Egypt, They've traveled for about two to three months to get to this place. And the book tells us that there are 600,000 men plus women and children. Now, throughout this journey, God has done a number of miraculous things for them. He sent plagues on the Egyptian people, like frogs and hail and all kinds of crazy things. He drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea after parting it for them. He fed them through water from a rock and from dropping little bits of food or manna from heaven every day for over a million people every day. He provided for them. He did all these things that were miraculous and amazing and astonishing. And as we read about these strange miracles, we start to see that the desert is taking its toll. You know, even though they're not slaves anymore, at least in Egypt, they knew the the surroundings. Everything around them felt familiar, comforting to some extent. But now, out here in this desert, it's barren and lonely, and they start to forget how God has cared for them along the way. 
So they start to grumble. That's actually the word the Bible uses. They grumble and they fight and they worry. They worry about being killed. They worry about starving to death, not having enough to drink. Despite everything that God has done for them, they are terrified of what the future will bring. The past and all of its glory is just not enough to make them feel certain about the worries of today. So we enter this story now at this point of really grave uncertainty. Moses has gone up on the mountain to talk to God to find out what the next steps are for the people, and he hasn't come back yet. The Bible says that he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And the mountain, meanwhile, is surrounded by this giant gray thundercloud. There's all this rumbling and scariness going on up there, and they watch Moses just climb right into the middle of it. So maybe they think that he's a goner. You know, maybe they think God has abandoned them, that Moses, their, their, their middleman, that he's not coming back. And they're scared. You know, maybe they waited three days, maybe they waited 38. We don't know. But whatever faith these people were building up over the course of this journey, it was lost in the fear of the unknown when anxiety overtook them. Can any of you relate to this? I know that I've had plenty of times in my life where I have been asking for something from God where he just wasn't coming through quickly enough. He wasn't coming through on my timeline. So I decided to take matters into my own hands or I just lost faith altogether. So I can sympathize with the people of Israel when they go to Aaron saying, we need some answers from God. You know, we don't know what happened to Moses. We, we want a God that we can control. We want to be certain of something because we're scared of the future. We don't want to be alone. When Moses isn't there to protect them, they exchange this God they can't control for one of more manageable dimensions, for an idol that they've seen before, they've seen in Egypt, and it's a golden calf. So Aaron told them, Take off the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. They all did it. They removed the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands, cast it in the form of a calf, shaping it with an engraving tool. The people responded with enthusiasm. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from Egypt. So, hold on. Do you guys understand what's happening here? These people are literally taking the gold, the necklaces, the earrings, right off the necks and ears of their wives and children. They're giving it to Aaron to make this shoddy, tacky, golden calf. And it's shocking when you stop to realize that the only reason why they have these things, because remember, they were slaves, they have these fine metals because God allowed them to raid the homes of the Egyptians before they were freed. And now here they are literally taking these gifts of gold from God and turning them into an idol and giving that idol the credit for what God has done for them. It seems kind of crazy, but how often do we take personal credit for the gifts that God has given us? You know, have you ever felt pride for landing that new job? Or for graduating from school? Or having that apartment that your friends are envious of. When the truth is, your health and your ability to work hard are gifts from God. Your brain, your aptitude for learning, your gifts in science and math, they're gifts from God. As mundane as it might seem, even your timing of getting to that apartment and signing that lease before the next guy is a gift from God. I was having a conversation with one of our friends in this community, actually, um, about this, these ordinary gifts that we often forget about, that we forget to thank God for. And she was telling me about a guy she dated 
who was a Christ follower, is a Christ follower, and he was saying that he really likes to have nice things. He chose his career in finance so he could have a luxury apartment and wear nice clothing and surround himself with nice things. And that's all right, you know. But when she asked him about his how he feels about tithing or giving or donating his money, he confessed that he has a really hard time parting with his money and his material things. When the truth of it all is, is that his ability to get that good job, to live in a country where he has the freedom to go to school, to choose where he lives, to choose his career, are all possible only because God put him in a place, in a family, with certain gifts and aptitudes for for work and for finance. Everything we have is a gift from God. And if we can start to wrap our hearts and our heads around that, then maybe we'll find it a little easier to deal with money or to part with our material things. You know, and if you're struggling with that idea and, and kind of judging the man in that story, then ask yourself, how easy would it be for me to part with my favorite purchase? You know, how easy would it be for me to give up those boots that I saved a couple of months for or that trip that I've been preparing for for a year? Here we are, rich in relationships, surrounded by the divine, Provided for daily, most all of us have a roof over our head, enough food to eat, people to take care of us, and it doesn't always look the way we want it to. Maybe it's not as fancy or luxurious, maybe it's not quite what we dreamed of, but that's our culture telling us that we don't have enough, that we need to have more, that simple is not good enough. We see the new iPhone 6 coming out and we have to have it, but why? What does it do for you to have such material things? What does it do for your faith? Idolatry, by definition, is seeking glory in something other than God. Idolatry finds God insufficient and inadequate. Idolatry insists that there must be something better than God. Whatever we value more than God is an idol, and thus the attention we give it is the practice of idolatry. This may be different things for different people, but I believe that we all have our idols in one way or another. Maybe it's money, maybe it's our diploma, the things that we turn to before we turn to God, the things we turn to instead of God. Do you ever find yourself relying on material things instead of God? I mean, what do you do when life isn't going so well? Who do you turn to? Do you look to your job for happiness or to your paycheck for security? I think the reason that it's so much easier for us to put our trust in money than it is in God sometimes is because, like the Israelites, we want a God who will go before us. We want a tangible, material thing that we can hold on to. So when the Bible refers to something that goes before us, it's, it's talking about this idea of protection. The Israelites didn't have enough faith to believe that this God who parted the Red Sea for them, that he was a true living God, their faith fell short of trusting in something or someone that they couldn't hold. They'd rather fashion a God of their own making, a golden calf, or for us, little green sheets of paper, because we can count that. We can put value on that. We can place value on material things much easier than we can on immaterial things. So it's it's easier to follow this culture of putting our security in our bank accounts or a house with a backyard rather than to put our trust and our values in the kingdom of God and faith and love and trust. Just like Israel in this passage, when we forget where we've come from or all that God has done from us, For us, when we forget about that, we begin to get uncertain about the future, complacent even about what he's doing or not doing for us. And 
And then we start to get worried. And then we start to rely on earthly things. Like a little kid with her security blanket, it just feels more secure, safer, familiar. You know, we can all sit here and laugh at these little silly Israelites for building an idol that looks like a cow, but it's the same thing that we do today with our money. We worship money because it promises to give us power over our lives. Rather than submitting to a God who is just simply beyond our control. Yet, the truth is we cannot even rule our own lives. Our ability to make money comes from God. A turning point came for me in my life a couple of years ago. I was about to end a contract as a production manager. And I had said yes on a leap of faith to um, a new apartment that was slightly more in rent, but it was going to allow me to live out my values a little more. It was a good decision in hindsight. But when I found out that my contract wasn't going to be renewed, I kind of started to panic. And at the time, I had started to see a career counselor because I wanted to figure out how to stop saying yes to any job that would pay the rent and start selecting something that would help craft a a career that I could actually love. But when I sat down with her and told her that I was worried and panicking about the future, she slowed me down and asked, Have you ever been homeless before? No. Well, have you ever not been able to pay your rent or not had enough to eat? No, I usually always find a way to to make my rent every month. Okay, well, are you alone in this world? Do you not have family or friends that you can count on? No, I have a great family and a wonderful support system. Okay, so then why are you so worried about money? And I had to slow myself down and realize that, yeah, maybe I need to take another look. I had been pretty blessed in my life. I don't know where all this worry was coming from. So I can, I can relate to the Israelites because despite all that God has done for me, I still worry about the future even when I have no like, really good reason to worry. And sometimes I let that worry influence me into making rushed and poor decisions. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, connects financial problems with its spiritual root of discontentment, uncertainty, and even greed. A devout life does bring wealth, but it's the rich simplicity of being yourself before God. Since we entered the world penniless, we'll leave it penniless. If we have bread on the table and shoes on our feet, that's enough. But if it's only money these leaders are after, they'll self-destruct in no time. Lust for money brings trouble and nothing but trouble. Going down that path, some lose their footing in the faith completely and live to regret it bitterly ever after. You know, we trust God with our money, not because of what it can do for God, but what that trust can do for us. We give our gold to God as an act of worship. And sure, some of us do it right now because of guilt or shame. Maybe you put money in the offering basket because you're afraid that he'll hate you if you don't. And if you're having trouble with your spending, if you're unhappy with your spending habits, maybe it's not because you're a terrible person, but maybe it's just because you're uncertain of who God is and what that relationship means for your future. But these are the things that I hope we'll start to unpack together over the next few weeks as a community. I hope that we can become a church of people who live from a place of faith, who give from a place of gratitude and generosity, and whose outer actions are simply a reflection of the heart of Jesus. God doesn't want our gold. He doesn't want our idols because of what it will do for him. He wants those things because of what it will do for us when we part with it. It's what happens inside when we set aside idolatry for a faith that is real.
You know, the story that I shared earlier about the family that's wrestling with living from their values and struggling with the material world. Well, the truth is that as Christ followers, we are called into that same tension. This is what commerce looks like in the kingdom of God. So if you've decided to live as a Christ follower, then that question of what matters to me should always be paired with what matters to Jesus. These upside-down values are exactly what God wants from us because he knows that it's good for our hearts, and everything he does is aimed at shaping our hearts for his good. So, are you like Moses, or are you more like Aaron? Who do you credit when things are going well? What do you do when they're not? You know, are you a pillar of cloud kind of person or a golden calf person? Can you handle the unknown, or do you need a concrete faith? Anne Lamott, the author, says the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. So do you need God to be something exact and specific and certain, or are you okay with sitting in the unknown and the tension and the mystery of him? We too must ask ourselves whether we are choosing the safety of the known, the golden calf, or if we're following after Jesus' call into the unknown. There's a song that we're going to sing. My favorite part is, Spirit, lead me where my truth is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet would ever wander. My faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. And we sing this song kind of often around here. These lyrics, they remind me to keep trusting, to give my worries over to God and trust that all he gives me, all he leads me to, will be bigger and better than anything that I could imagine or do on my own if only I can trust. So I want us to close this morning by inviting the band to come back up and inviting the greeters to get ready for communion. We're going to just take a couple of moments of silence as we get ready for communion. And I want you to take that that index card, that list of your desires, your dreams, and your values, what matters to you. And if you're new with us this morning, if you haven't decided what you feel about this Jesus guy yet, that's all right. Just take a couple moments to reflect on where you get your values from and to look through that list and decide, you know, are those things lining up? But if you have decided to follow the heart of Jesus, then take a couple moments to just confess to him where you've maybe made things into idols other than him. Ask him to help shape your heart so that what matters to him is what matters to you. And then finally, just ask that he would help to merge what matters to you and what you desire into one. So let's take a couple moments to end.